Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the topic of implementation science in pharmacy with our guest, Dr. Denise Roney. Dr. Roney currently serves as the Ron and Nancy McFarlane Distinguished Professor in the Division of Practice Advancement and Clinical Education at the University of North Carolina's Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Dr. Roney's current focus is translating her clinical experience to the interface between practice and education. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, we're glad to have you, Dr. Roney. Um, I'm, just to our listeners, I'd love to say welcome back to this new season of Disrupt after taking a break over the summer. We're back at it. I, I think we have some exciting, cutting-edge, timely topics lined up for this year and some fantastic guests, and the first of which is uh, Dr. Denise Roney. So uh, Dr. Roney received her Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Kentucky and did two years of residency at the University of Kentucky as well, followed by fellowship training with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I, I believe you also had some time with Glaxo as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Well, we're super excited to have you, and I'm excited about our topic today of implementation science. It's, to me at least, a new field, um, and I think it's one that um, will be great for everyone to hear about. So let me go ahead and turn this over to you and just simply ask you to tell us a little bit more about your own uh, story and getting into pharmacy and, and a little of your training as well. Great. I'd love to. Um, uh, I'm originally from North Carolina. I'm a native North Carolinian and grew up in the western part of the state, but decided to um, go to school at the University of Kentucky, where I did my pre-pharmacy work at the University of Kentucky, and I received both a Bachelor of Pharmacy and a Doctor of Pharmacy at, at Kentucky. I had a really growing passion in the area of neurocritical care, which was not even an established field back in those days, <laughs> and um, decided to stay at the University of Kentucky because they did have a very strong presence working with the neurosurgeons at, um, at the medical center. So I stayed and I did what was a general clinical residency, which is now pharmacy practice residency. And then I did a critical care specialized residency all at uh, the, the Chandler Medical Center there as part of University of Kentucky. After that, I did come back to North Carolina and focus more on clinical research and worked closely in the, in the anesthesia area with Glaxo and did a, a drug development and worked with a, a product called Remifentanil right when it was in drug development and phase three testing and um, had some experience working with, um, with the, with the anest, um, anesthesiologist and learning that application. So that was wonderful. At the time when I finished fellowship and was looking for jobs, I still had this burning passion around uh, neurocritical care practice, and there weren't lots of opportunities, and one opportunity did present itself at Detroit Receiving Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, and they had hired a new group of neurosurgeons to run the neurotrauma unit and requested a pharmacist be part of their package. So I was a, the pharmacist to really establish uh, clinical pharmacy services within this neuro ICU or neurotrauma ICU at Detroit Receiving Hospital and was um, critical care uh, residency program director and um, ended up training a lot of folks who ended up going into this field and now are training other people. So kind of it's kind of nice to to see that I got trained by folks that then I went out and trained others. 
I did switch to a tenure track position after a couple of years in a clinical position at Detroit Receiving Hospital at Wayne State, but stayed within um, that practice setting and still precepted students and residents and and worked with a clinical faculty member partner. So we covered the service um, the entire uh, 12 months. But I really had this desire to get more into a research focus, and that's why I switched. But I was in Detroit for 17 years. Um, and I think that some of the background when we talk about implementation science, you'll see it may be rooted in, in being in an area where there's not a lot of information. You're trying to implement doing things, kind of going against the grain, trying to change behaviors. And and probably that's kind of where I got my roots, so to speak, is being in the, in the uh, trenches doing the work. I came to North Carolina in, in 2012, where I started as a uh, chair for the Practice Advancement Division, worked as a chair for six years, went into um, a position, an um, associate dean position of learning innovation and learning sciences, because I kind of combined my love of the brain with learning cognitive learning sciences. And... Um, then I, I stepped down from that position about a year ago and really to focus on some of these big efforts that need to be done at this interface between practice and education um, that need to be done more nationally. So um, really to get back to my roots of, of research. So that's my long story, I guess. But um, but um, really, I think every piece of that story relates to where I got today and my interest today. Absolutely. And I think your story is going to set the stage as well for some of your own growing interest in implementation science as we talk about that. So uh, I think this will all come back. So one of the things I've noticed is that it, it seems like there's a growing body of research supporting how new interventions by pharmacists improve patient outcomes and population health. And, and let me even say there's new data, but we've got a lot of old data too, showing how <laughs> pharmacists support that. However, one thing that I've seen in practice is some of these interventions don't always translate to the everyday workflow pharmacists. They're hard to implement, right? So I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts? Are there barriers that stifle the uptake of new services or interventions in our healthcare system today? And, and if so, what are they? Absolutely. I think you you hit that spot on. I think when we look at trying to deliver high quality and consistent care, it's really been a big challenge overall in healthcare, not just pharmacy practice, but overall in healthcare. I think one of the biggest barriers that we have is getting around this, uh, this thing that I know everyone has heard someone say, we've always done it that way. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, and, and you hear it, you hear it in education, you hear it everywhere. And it really, you realize then from the start that you have to tackle behavior change more than anything. And that is the most difficult pieces. If you look in the literature, we know that it, it, it's clear that studies have, say, have said, even for um, big pieces of you know, medication, um, evidence-based medication practice, it can take 17 to 20 years to see that clinical innovation get into practice. And then maybe only 14% of the original research that even gets published actually makes it to patients. So it's not, um, you know, it's, it's really not that, that strange to think that studies on practice also don't make it into, into the clinical and setting. You would, you would think that, that some of the excuses people would have as far as, you know, um, why don't we adopt all these things that are coming out there, that, that, you know, there's so many things out there and, and many people would blame it on the rapid pace of research, but actually, no, it's, it's really old. 
<laughs> and like you said, there's old studies, there's other things. And, and it's interesting because I was reading a paper that, that pointed this out and they used the example that I'll use here, that if you think back to how old this problem is, you think back to the intervention for treating scurvy. And it took over 40 years after the first randomized control trial to actually see that a citrus intervention was adopted that now we all think is just standard. So the problem of this non-uptake of clinical innovations is not longstanding. It is, I mean, it is longstanding, but it's not just unique to pharmacy. So I think the one thing when you talk about barriers, it, you have to understand that it lies beyond just the innovation itself. And it, you really do have to consider more contextual or human organizational factors. And so one thing that you see in that gets talked about a lot in implementation science is something about readiness to change and understanding readiness. And this is crucial because the, this readiness to change really defines these barriers you're talking about. So when a new innovation is introduced, you have to assess this, this readiness because this will evaluate all the barriers you're working against <laughs> or what you need to do to, um, to change. And, it will, and if you don't do this, it undermines the innovation. So think about it from practice setting. The practice has to be both willing and able. So willing and able to carry out the change. It's not just that it's defined, this innovation. And we, as you said, it is defined. It's in the literature. But are we willing and able to carry it out? And then, and then that will ultimately result in a successful implementation that's sustainable. And, and if you think about this from pharmacy practice, this will sh show you why I have such an interest in this interface of, of practice and education. Because it education is really crucial to driving practice change. Because when we think about assessing readiness, there are some key components. And some of the key components, one is specific to the innovation itself. And it's, you know, really defining what is needed to make the innovation happen. And this can include things of, of specific knowledge, skills, and abilities. That, that sounds like education, right? <laughs> Around the innovation, right? And so we could really help drive this by, you know, understanding competencies needed and us as schools of pharmacy helping to help the programs in their readiness to do these things. Other things that are that are uh, you have to assess as, a, as, as you think about innovation specific capacity or you need to identify a program champion. That's really important. You need to see what your climate is. You need to understand relationships, um, inter-organizational relationships. Other things that are uh, that could be barriers that you need to assess is the general capacity, the, the overall functioning of the organization. What's the culture, the climate, the structure, resource utilization, leadership, staff capacity, all of those things. And, and, and when I say those things, I think you can realize how that can undermine an innovation. And then last is motivation. What is the degree to which they want the intervention to happen? Because if they don't, it really likely won't happen. <laughs> so th to me, those are all like key barriers that need to be understood uh, before you even think about implementing something new. That's one of the things I love so much about this idea of implementation science. It starts with understanding the um, the drivers of change, right? And understanding right. what what keeps it from happening. 
And then uh, all, a lot of the science, from what I understand, is driven at breaking down those barriers and creating structures in which uh, the changes can happen. So this is that's uh, great information. It kind of sets the stage as we continue to really hone in on this topic. So uh, let's make this uh, simpler for our listeners and just simply say, um, we've talked about this idea of implementation science. If you had to define it in your own words, what would your definition be? Sure. You know, I think implementation science essentially is a bridge or it continues the job of biomedical research. And if you just end up publishing biomedical research and you publish it and we think that's the end and people are just going to adopt it and use it, I think we've proven that doesn't happen always. Some do, but the large majority of patients never realize the benefit of the hard work that you've done. So having this bridge then to when you have something that has been defined by the biomedical research, that then you can take it and have very um, focused frameworks and strategies that then can get them adopted into a wider practice. To me, that's what implementation science does. Great. So I'm curious, what are some of the common um, research questions that are asked within implementation science? Yeah, you know, when you think about, and and I think one thing I do want to mention, Justin, uh, for the purists out there in implementation science, they like to say that the field of implementation science includes two parts, right? The implementation research part and the implementation practice part. And I think that is important um, to understand that there's things that you should just do that's part of your fabric, that you consider all of these things that are really part of practice. Right. But then we also need to study it because we need to make sure that we are looking at at these things. Um, And so when you're looking at implementation research, which would be the question you just asked me, or what are the common research questions? You know, they really focus on studying the use of strategies to adopt and integrate innovations into practice settings. You know, obviously to overall improve patient outcomes and benefit our, our patients that we're serving. They, they um, try to identify knowledge practice gaps, which include facilitators and barriers. They try to also study the most effective implementation strategies because others need to use those too in their practice. And then um, also mechanisms to, to sustain and scale up services to be effective. So these are some of the common research type um focus areas you'll see in those who submit implementation research type projects or grants. That's great. So another question that comes up in my own mind, I have a quality improvement background and uh, it sounds like there are some things that are similar, but, but also different. So how is implementation science different from or similar to quality improvement that we often talk about in pharmacy practice? I think that's a great question because a lot of people might use them interchangeably and, and um, they're not quite interchangeable. I'd say they're synergistic (laughs) and they're both important, right? So if you look at quality improvement, like you said, we all realize that as being a way that we can narrow also this practice knowledge gap and improve outcomes. Um, Quality improvement uses a lot of rapid cycle learning processes um, that's informed by measurement um, implementation strategy, implementation science uses strategies uh, for effective practice uh, adoption, and they really focus on how contextual fa- factors influence that process. 
Okay, whereas quality improvement doesn't do as much of the in, of the factors that influence. So you can say they're synergistic. They share similar goals, um, such as being a system level approach. They test modifications. <laughs> they use data, and they rely on multi stakeholder teams. However, I think some of the differences come in, in the theoretical models, the tools and strategies used, and I think the time frame. Quality improvement typically focuses on a short term type approach, whereas if you think about implementation science, they're focused on medium and long term. They look at sustainability of that into practice to stay there. Because if you just uh, if you just implement something, you might implement it, but it might fizzle away in a couple of years. And uh, implementation science is trying to get it there for the long term. So I would say that they both should be used together and they both used together can help us reach what our goal uh, is of improved care of our patients. I love the term you use of synergistic there. I think it shows the value of both and how there there are ways in which they can actually support one another. That's great. So I, I want to go back to your story a little bit, and I think you gave us uh, a few uh, hints of this, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you became interested in the field of implementation science. Was there maybe a story that kind of changed your uh, approach to practicing, you know what, I want to be a part of the solution in helping bring some of these research changes to practice more broadly. Uh, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your interest and how you got there. Sure. And it's probably not just one thing. It's probably a combination of things. And I would say that the the overall uh, driving factor was just a sense of frustration and a frustration with what I started with, with every, of hearing it and every different aspect of anything you did in your day, this is how we've always done it. I'm very much an out of the box creative thinker <laughs> and um, always thinking more in that quality, you know, always thinking the rapid cycle, like what, what can I do? What can, what, what can we do better? Always not settling for it's just this is the way we do it and not settling for no, really looking for ways and avenues to make things work. So I think that just seeing the frustration of, 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 of how long it saw you see the uptake of innovation and this fell in education, too. If you just think about how long it took to get anything done that you knew that it was going to benefit our students, that would then in practice benefit our patients. It, it, it said there has to be, you know, a better way. And then, you know, like you said, looking at I'm in critical care, looking at all of the data that shows the impact of a critical care pharmacist and then hearing what was happening in the in our, um, you know, an environment where they were laying off ICU pharmacists. And it's, you know, how can this be when we have all of this information and all of this data that shows that, you know, patients need pharmacists to, you know, prevent, identify, and manage medication therapy problems. Like, we're the, one of the few professions that focus on the drug. And so how can that happen? So that's when, and I, and I was lucky that I was at a place like North Carolina, because we are associated um, here in Chapel Hill with the National Implementation Research Network, or NERN. And they are affiliated with UNC. And I got to just start talking with some of the folks within NERN. And you start thinking, yeah, this makes sense. Like, it's just really common sense when you think about it, you know. And and it made me take that step back and say, okay, why are these people saying this is the way we've always done it? And made me start looking at 
in intentionally evaluating and understanding what could be these barriers. They weren't barriers to me because I was always that outside the box thinker, you know, and mm-hmm. and and really helped me to understand how to work with others. Um, because it is, it's team. It's a team in doing this work. And um, so I think it's just a combination of everything and a snowball, I would say, <laughs> of things and, and, and final frustration. And then being at a place where there was a great resource where I could learn as well. Yeah, that's great. And I think you've got some great words of wisdom for both practicing pharmacists and future pharmacists as well. And, and that simple, simply would be, don't take we've always done it as a good answer to your questions, right? That's right. Um, there are all, almost always ways in which things can be improved, even if in small degrees, um, to, right. to improve patient care. And we stand on the shoulders of many giants who did not settle for that answer to your question being satisfying. That's why innovation has happened. We've had people who are willing to um, push the envelope and see, is there a way we can do something better? So we, I, I think, uh, to carry the the torch of the many healthcare providers and pharmacists before us, need to, need to approach things the same way. And I find that perspective of yours very refreshing. So, uh, uh-huh. yeah. 100% agree. I, I, I echo that and can't say that's beautifully said and really would want others to really understand that and practice that. Great. So I want to dive a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of implementation mm-hmm. research here. So um, tell us more about this idea of models and frameworks. What are they and, and why are they important? Yeah, and I think these are real, they're real important. I'm, I'm a big framework person when it comes to education even to help our students understand all the things and, and, and look at the big picture you know, to, to understand I'm here, but I want to get to here. And what does it take me to get to there? Right. And that's simply what a framework is. It helps us understand how to achieve success. So it really helps guide our planning phases, our implementation phases, our evaluation phases, and helps us really construct how we want to measure the impact of the innovation. Now, unfortunately, there are more than 60 frameworks available. There are a lot, yeah. There are a ton, and I think it it can be overwhelming to people. I will say that uh, Marie Smith and colleagues published a great paper called The Intersection of Implementation Science and Pharmacy Practice Transformation. I find this paper has a wonderful table I refer people to that provides a summary of some of the more common frameworks that have been used in practice transformation. And this table also has um, an additional table that shows application of pharmacy practice. So it gives you that context to understand, okay, here's a framework, here's how it's defined, but I don't really know what that means, but here's an example of it. So I would really recommend that paper as a great starting place for anyone who wants to learn more about frameworks. When you think about selecting a framework, it really depends on what question you wanna answer. And there are some some common frameworks, um, like there's a, a framework called the Proctor Model, and it focuses on how to evaluate implementation outcomes like acceptability, cost, feasibility, fidelity. There are other frameworks that focus on determinants within varying contextual domains that influence implementation outcomes. And this is one of the more common ones that have been used by practice transformation folks. It's called the Consolidated Framework for Implementing Research. I have had more experience with the Active Implementation Framework because it was launched by NERN that I talked about earlier. 
and it gives you and outlines mechanisms and strategies on how to put a practice um, that it, it put an, an innovation into practice. The key component of the active implementation framework is you have to have a usable innovation defined. So you've got to define what it is. It talks about implementation drivers, the stages you need to go through, the improvement cycle. So it shows that synergy with quality improvement and implementation science, and then focuses on the teams. And so, um, you know, this is just a, a ever expanding field <laughs> of frameworks, but you really need to identify what your question is and identify um, the one that best fits. And there may be a couple options to you um, with any given question, but one that would make the most sense for what you're trying to do. Great. I I would echo um, Denise's words on Marie Smith's paper um, on um, the intersection of implementation science and pharmacy. It's a great resource for those who want to learn a little bit more. Um, so for a lot of our listeners, you're probably thinking, wow, this is a really theoretical uh, episode here. And you're right, it is. But it, it's very practical, too. So I want to kind of shift a little bit to talk about that practicality. And we wouldn't be good podcasters if we didn't mention COVID. So let's go there. <laughs> so the, the profession of pharmacy, we know, has been undergoing major shifts. And we've only seen COVID be kind of an accelerator, right? Um, so I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are some of those shifts in practice that you've seen over your career and, and maybe some of those that have been augmented or accelerated by the recent pandemic? Yeah, I think that when we when we think about this and, and think about pharmacy practice and the largest shifts, you you all, you turn straight to community practice. Right. That's <laughs> that was the, the, the folks that really stepped up and really were out there. Uh, when there was, you know, so much happening and, and, and everything being shut down. And as a result, we saw some loosening of, of, reg, of legislation. And this happened globally. It just wasn't here in the United States. And that was the interesting part. And I showed, the, I think, the true impact. And so this loosening of, of, the, of the, um, the laws resulted in community pharmacy services having, you know, this clear objective of improving access to care and getting access to medications. And um, I don't, you know, and, and when I think about it is we think, oh, well, like it really changed what we were doing. It, it didn't change. It just highlighted what we were always doing. Good point. And, and so, you know, we say it's a paradigm shift and, and, and we see, and I've read some, you know, much as the papers about like how it's, you know, how it's changed everything. I, I, I don't I don't think so. I think it really just gave us the opportunity more to show the important work our community um, practitioners um, do. And we know that community pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare practitioners. We've always known that. The pandemic just highlighted it. Um, they carried on and reduced the burden of our healthcare system and really helped support it by making sure all the patients had the medications when they couldn't go into the doctors. They participated in telehealth services and really highlighted, and, and that thing I think launched, COVID did launch telehealth into the more uh, everyday life. It was kind of trickling. It was out there. But they also had to educate patients on telehealth as well. They had to work with them to get renewals of chronic medications, you know, can consult them on minor ailments, you know, talk about misconceptions about COVID treatments and contributed to screening and vaccinations, et cetera. But all those things I just said, they were already doing prior to COVID. 
just people didn't recognize it and recognize the value. So, um, you know, I, I, I believe that COVID did uh, highlight that. And for that, I think that that was the change. But, I, you know, I just also don't want to be remiss because I am in this practice education, um, you know, interface is that the same thing can be said about education you know, and, and everything that changed education it, and it mirrored what we saw in practice. We had to change our delivery. <laughs> we had to identify what was important to teach. We had to have more purposeful experiential training. And, and in fact, I, I wrote a paper that was published in JACCP about forces driving change in pharmacy education. And, and I looked at things that were driving change pre-COVID and then post-COVID. And while we think COVID was this major force You'll find both in education and practice, there were signs long before COVID that showed us that we needed a paradigm change, that we needed to focus on new things. And I think that what what we need to learn from the COVID situation is that we need to be able to better see around corners and be more proactive in identifying a need for change such that we don't have to be so reactive when COVID, something like COVID arises or the next COVID arises. And that means that we have to get around that we've always done it that way mentality and recognize that there's something out there saying we need to make a tweak in it. Like you said, it doesn't have to be a big tweak. It can be a small tweak. And make that change as you go along and then we're more prepared for any of these circumstances that come up. Well, I love that word picture you paint of being able to see around corners and, and identify things that are coming. So I kind of see implementation science as one of those tools that may be able to help us do that a bit better. So I'm curious to know, how do you see implementation science catalyzing the uptake of new services or um, interventions in education? Uh, how does it just accelerate that whole process? Absolutely. And I do want to, with the Scene Around Corners, I, I do want to um, credit, there is a book called Scene Around Corners by Rita McGrath that um, I read that is really, um, I, I would highly recommend, that really inspired me to, to think differently about all these changes and these signs and looking at signposting for changes. So that's a great book read I would recommend for your listeners as well. But back to your question on how implementation, you know, science catalyzes it. When you think about implementation science, I, I think it should be clear now that it's more than just doing investigation at the patient level, which like that's what we think of in biomedical research, right? It's all at the patient level. When you think about this and how it can catalyze, it's because the targeted investigation includes much broader group, the provider, the clinic, the facility, the organization, the community, the policy, <laughs> which that's one thing that's going to have to be tackled if we're going to make changes <laughs> in what we do. So, you know, and I think the other piece that implementation science makes us think about that often we don't think about is in order to adopt, scale, or sustain a service, it may require us to de-implement an ineffective or inefficient program or service as well. And that's hard, the subtraction part, right? Mm -hmm. Is how do, you know, is how do we, in order to commit to implementing something that may be more robust, we may have to de-implement something. So I think that um, that's one thing that it, it, implementation science can really help catalyze because if you're going to ask people to do more, is there something they're doing that is not as effective that we could we could get rid of that 
they could then use that time to now adopt something that is more effective. Um, when, you know, again, I think that using implementation science, like we talked about before with the frameworks, the strategies, the methods, you know, insights that we learn, it, I, I 100% believe it's critical for accelerating practice transformation and really doing what we want to do um, to improve patient care. So um, to me, I think that the, the, the using implementation science is, is really key as we want to move forward in pharmacy practice. Yeah, I agree completely with all those comments. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to know, kind of getting more on your personal experience with it, mm-hmm. what's some of the work that you're doing? And, and what are some of the things that you've learned uh, along this journey of diving into implementation science? Sure. And the example I want to give is going to be an outside the box example, and it's not true practice transformation. I I do a lot trying to look at, um, it, to me, it's important for, for those engaging in practice transformation work is looking at the intervention they're trying to do. And I look at it from a standpoint and, and developed um, a methodology for an aim at identifying some of the competency gaps, you know, in in in, in that we could potentially hinder the uptake. And and I think to me that's an important um, aspect to have, you know, particularly of those of us in pharmacy education. If we're sitting in pharmacy practice departments, we really should also focus on what we can do from workforce development and education to get the folks prepared from that competency. Because um, we just assume everybody will feel confident doing all of these things. But not everybody's confident, you know, now being a prescriber for, um, you know, hormonal contraceptive agents, you know, for example, they may not have the confidence to be able to do something like that. But the example I want to give you is one because it's kind of outside the box example of how implementation science can be used. And it really uh, results in um, the use of it in a task force I just led that was a joint task force for the American Association of Colleges Pharmacy. And it was around competency based education. And when um, and I will use this example because, like I said earlier, implementation practices using these strategies into the fabric of what you do. So I want to use an example because, yes, you can use it for practice transformation. You can use it in education transformation, but you can also use it in your committee work because oftentimes committees come up with things that need to be implemented. And they might come and then you might have that recommendation, but you don't have the full picture that you could where it would actually, so it's not, it's, so it's not any different than a clinical trial. Sometimes committee work, right? You come up with recommendations and it needs to be used. We know that AACP really recognized the importance of implementation science and they charged two separate years of their research and graduate affairs committee that talked about and defined strategies and actions for how we could apply implementation science in the, in the academy they recommended that implementation science be infused into practice and education transformation efforts. So as we talked about before, it is a critical tool uh, to, to bridge that research to practice gap, but also there is a gap you have to close and that's the practice to education gap. And so as a result, I, I used implementation science to guide our task force around competency-based education, and we used a tool that was part of the active implementation framework called the Heptagon tool. I chose this tool because it's a, it's a tool that is used 
in different stages of implementation, but most commonly in exploration. And I felt like that's where we were as an academy with CBE is exploration. And it answers two questions. And our questions were, is COMC-based pharmacy education the right thing to do? And can we do it the right way? Okay, so that shows you that the, how that bridges the, is it the right thing to do, which is usually where biomedical research would be, but then makes us go that second step and say, okay, even if it is the right thing to do, if we can't do it the right way, then it may not be worth doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and to me, this tool was important because it went down into um, all sorts of domains, looking at fit, feasibility, implementation drivers, the strengths, the barriers, all of those things. So I just use that as an example that's not truly practice in nature, but just to show you that you can use implementation science even in committee work. And I think that the the strengths of what we our work was with that task force and how thoroughly we evaluated the charge that was given to us um, really could set things up for success in the future. So I just encourage folks to think of various different ways that you can use implementation science. I think that's a, a great example. And, and for me, it boils down to this thought that uh, passing grades in a course or GPA don't necessarily correlate with competency, right? That's right. Uh, there are so many other things that we need uh, our pharmacists to be able to do that aren't necessarily demonstrated simply by a grade. Now, I know we have really smart people in assessment that know how to make that more meaningful, right? That's right. But I love the fact that um, your group is just not accepting the answer of, well, that's always how we've done it. And instead asking, can we potentially move toward a different model of education that focuses on what's really needed for a, a, a practicing pharmacist. So uh, kudos to your work and thank you for, I know that's well, it was a lot of work um, and I, I hope that it'll, it'll pay fruit in the future. So thank you. And, what, and one thing, Justin, I just want to close that loop is, is to link that back then to practice is, is we're lifelong learners. Our work in comps development is not all done. So like I said, when you're looking at a new practice in innovation, we can't just assume everybody is ready to do it, right? And so, so that's how we can develop it more on, and, and, and we think about education from a lifetime, not just four years in pharmacy school. And, and using that these types of practices and these types of things to go into your research questions when you're looking and, and understanding all those barriers. And some of the barriers are, is they, they may not have confidence to do it. And there have been studies to show that some community pharmacists just didn't have confidence to do some of the, you know, the interventions that, that, that you know, are out there that can be done that our patients need. And so, so that's an easy gap for us to close. Absolutely. As educators. <laughs> yeah, that human barrier to change is a big one. But if we can move the needle, man, a lot That's can right. be done. So uh, for those who are, are thinking, wow, this sounds really interesting. I, I'd love to learn more. Um, what kind of training is needed for a student pharmacist, a pharmacist, a researcher um, before they can start really diving into implementation science? Yeah, and the, and the article that we talked about earlier that Marie Smith and colleagues published, they also identified, um, you know, some, some some competencies that are core to being effective 
in implementation science practitioners or researchers as well. So I think that if we talked about that paper. It's a great place to start. If you just want to start with the first paper, that's a great one. You know, it really it really varies the skills that you need to, to varies to your current practice setting. And if you're trying to do practice or research, I think both implementation science practitioners and researchers have to understand some of the core theories and frameworks. Um, you have to uh, have the ability to engage stakeholders um, into trying to achieve these goals and, and sustainability and scalability. Um, you know, you have to have the ability to assess need. You know, the one thing that's so important when you're talking about um, implementation science, it, it also cr closely relates to change leadership as well. And I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek's Golden Circles, the power of why. You have to start with why, and you have to be that kind of person that can clearly show the, the need or the why. You have to start there. You don't start with the how and the what. And 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 unfortunately, all of us in pharmacy want to go straight to that, yeah, you know, and not just pharmacy. Everybody wants to go straight to that. You know, what's it going to mean? What's it going to do this? But you haven't really taken the time to understand the why. And so that piece is critically important. So you have to be a person that will hold true to staying with that power of why. And then if you want to be more into research, there are obviously other competencies and, and they're particularly understanding different research methodologies because most of the studies are more of a mixed method study. So they're more quantitative and qualitative. And so that um, you, you have to be able to understand the designs of implementation science are very different than clinical research. Mm -hmm. Clinical research wants to control everything and implementation science is not controlling it. It's trying to understand these contextual changes and adapting to those those things. And um, I think the last thing is is you have to that some of the skill sets you have to be good at is building capacity, good relationships, um, you know, really helping a diverse group of stakeholders understand that why. I think that's that's critical. And as I said, Marie Smith and colleagues laid all this out. So if you don't remember all of what was said, you can refer to that paper and look at that. But um, again, I think any of this starts with understanding your why. Absolutely. And I would, uh, I would commend that same book as well. So I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Um, so uh, some of this too, there, there's kind of a, a networking component. And so I'd love to know what other resources are available um, for people that want to start learning. You mentioned there are some competencies associated with it, but don't let that be a barrier to getting started, right? Uh, so right. are there networks of people that are interested in this um, idea, toolkits, other things available that people could um, look at as well? Absolutely. There are a lot of things out there, both free and paid, <laughs> that, you, that that are, are available for anyone who wants to, to learn more. Um, the NIH Fogarty International Center on their website has a toolkit of resources for implementation science researchers. The NIH has started funding a lot more implementation science research and it makes sense because they're spending a lot of money to, put, to get a lot of studies out there that are not being used in practice. So it doesn't do a lot of good to spend a lot of money for a lot of these studies and this clinical research happening that is not being used in practice. So they do have a toolkit that, that links you to all sorts of different resource opportunities and things that you can read and you can learn about. 
The National Implementation Research Network, or NERN, that I talked about also has some free modules um, out there um, uh, uh, that you can do. I've learned learned a lot of what I learned doing their modules, uh, but it does it is very much focused on this active implementation framework. There are also some um, other articles that you can PubMed and Pharmacy Practice. Some, some of the authors are Jeffrey Curran from the University of Arkansas, has some really great articles out there. Carrie Blanchard and Melanie LeVay that are here at UNC have some primers on um, their work. They were very uh, uh, instrumental in the, the ACCP Comprehensive Medication Management Grant, the big CMM grant, and they've published a lot of work out there too. Then there are, are micro-credentials and certificates and fellowships and all sorts of things. There's, you know, there's actually an implementation science journal. They have a meeting just for implementation science. Um, you can look at the Society for Implementation Research Collaboration. They have a lot of resources there too. There's so much right now, Justin, out there on this. You can get degrees in it. You know, a lot of our students have done an MPH with an emphasis in implementation science. Um, so, uh, so students that are out there that want to look at dual degrees, I think that's not a bad option, particularly if you want to go into practice transformation work. So there's so many different things, depending on what your goals and desires, and sometimes where you are in your career, you know, um, that can help you just be a lifelong learner in this space. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of those. And and I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about learning more about this just from my conversation with you, Denise. And I've already learned a lot today, so I'm very appreciative of your time. Um, just want to give you an opportunity. Any closing thoughts on today's topic or just innovation practice transformation in general that you would want our listeners to hear? Sure. You know, I think when it, if you just summarize, if you think about how implementation science got to be so popular today because when you think about it and you look at it you're going to say man this makes sense this is like common sense why didn't we do this you know it, it you know it really evolved out of a need and the need was this persistent gap between research and practice <laughs> and how do we make something more routine that we know works and like you started out the podcast today saying we know we have these studies in pharmacy practice how do we make it routine um, the field of implementation science is multidisciplinary, and that's been my entire career. I have worked with so many disciplines across my career. So when you're when you've got uh, research teams, it can be the practitioners are key, patients are key, researchers, you know, healthcare management managers. You need medicine, psychology, nursing, um, even engineering. Uh, we've worked with engineering and, and looking at how do you re-engineer a space to be more effective, you know, and that sort of thing. So, you know, the, depending on what your question is, the sky's the limit, but social work, social sciences, everything, really, if you're going to do this, form teams of of all of these people because their backgrounds and their perspectives are just awesome. The other thing when you're talking about practice transformation is you probably also need to have a foothold on policy in, in the payers and understanding what kind of data is going to speak to them as well and, and what kind of and that will help also draw some of your outcomes. I think that we have to understand that what we're trying to do with practice transformation is complex. And because it's complex, it does require a lot of coordination and a lot of different logistics and things that we have to think about. And I think that's why implementation science is so critical to, to what we need. You know, while we know that this is a new field, 
the one thing that I'll leave to summarize the, the, our listeners with is that implementation science really explicitly focuses on mechanism of change. And it's important then to understand this, these mechanisms of change so you can have the processes in place to close that, that research practice ga um, gap. And I think when you want think about closing that gap, you really are guided by, you know, three key principles. First is behavior change. Behavior change is critical <laughs> to make anything happen. The second is engagement is you have to engage with a wide range of individuals and stakeholders to make it work. And then the last, it's flexibility. Implementation science research is rooted in flexibility. It's not that rigid randomized control trial. And um, it uses often nonlinear approaches in because we're dealing with the real world. And most of my career, when you look at the research I've done was real world research. It's, you know, when, because I worked in a space where randomized clinical trials didn't work. So that really is behavioral change, engagement, and flexibility. And, and I think that if you think about those things, that will show you that this is key for us making a difference and reaching the goals that we want to reach in practice transformation and even education transformation. Well, I think those are great closing words for us. Denise, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, Like I said earlier, I've learned a lot myself. I'm excited to learn more as well. Um, so thanks for coming on to the podcast as our guest today and uh, excited to see a lot of the other work that you'll continue to be doing in this area. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. It was such fun to be on the podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupt, a podcast from the Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share the podcast with others. For more information on the Cedarville University School of Pharmacy and Center for Pharmacy Innovation, visit www.cedarville.edu slash pharmacy. Thanks for listening.